Okay, concerning what we've covered so far, do you guys have any questions? We're all good. We got it down, right? Okay, tonight, as I go through this, I'm probably going to ask you some questions. Now, as I ask those questions, I don't expect that everybody is going to have the right answer on how to respond. My goal for asking the questions is so that it causes the wheels to start turning where we start thinking critically. We don't simply, as believers, want to hurl or lob certain verses at somebody and expect them not to have an explosive result. Jesus Christ came for everybody, including the homosexual. And so on one hand, we know that God is a God of justice. He is a just God. He will judge sin in any of its forms, not just homosexuality, but thievery or stealing and murder and licentiousness and debauchery and just everything he is going to judge. But he is also merciful. But it doesn't mean he will allow a sin to be unjudged because that's his nature. He is a perfect judge, but he's perfect in his mercy as well. And he told us how the mercy is extended to us, and that is simply by receiving him, becoming a Christian. That's how you receive the mercy. You don't receive the mercy after you die. After you die, everything is sealed up. It's almost like your life has been a scroll, and the scroll is rolled up, and there's a seal put on it, and that seal is going to be there until you are resurrected. If you're not a believer, at the great white throne judgment. If you are a believer, it's at the Bema Seat of Christ. And so we have tackled in the scriptures here. Why? (coughs) Why are we even at this crossroad? Now, can you tell me now why we are at this crossroad? What have I been telling you the past couple of weeks? Yes. Yes. That's right. We live in a postmodern world or we're rapidly heading there. And the postmodern world dictates morality by what the culture says, what the culture votes on. And so there is a battle on for the culture. And in this particular case, uh, the homosexual lobby, they're very powerful, but they are very small as far as the population is concerned. And they are swaying popular opinion. So it is the postmodern culture that is there. Also, it's because of the end times. We are in the end times, and the Lord says that sin will increase. And I don't want to be ambiguous on this. Homosexuality is a sin. In case anybody is questioning whether it is or not, it is a sin, and it is called to repent of, or we are called to repent of it if anybody is involved in it. Then secondly, what does the Bible say about immorality and specifically homosexuality? And I started out in Genesis chapter 2, went to Ephesians chapter 5, where Genesis chapter 2, verse 23 through 25 is repeated. 1 Corinthians 7, Leviticus 18, and Leviticus 20. <coughs> Excuse me, Ezekiel 16 and Jude, uh, verses 5 through 9, Romans 1, 20 through 20, 32, 2 Peter 6, 1, excuse me, 2 Peter 6 through, back up, 2 Peter 2, 6 through 10, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Revelation 22, 15, Galatians 5, 19 and 20, and 1 Timothy 1, 
9 through 7. Let's see, how many is that? That's 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. So I gave you 13 verses on this. Then we went into a little bit of how. Remember I told you we were going to do the why, what, and the how. And the how that we went into is how are we to interpret what the Bible says about homosexuality. And it simply said that it is wrong. It was wrong in the Old Testament. It's wrong in the New Testament. Now, we need to progress a little more with this how. How are we to respond to what the Bible says about homosexuality? How are we to treat others who are homosexuals or gay? How are we to respond to the homosexual agenda? How are we to engage others on the subject? Now, I'm going to stop on that one. How are we to engage others on the subject? Now, if you were to go down, and I don't recommend this, but if you're to go down to the Gay Pride Parade in Hillcrest, you will find a couple of groups of Christians down there, and they will have these banners. How do I know? Not because I've been there, because I've seen pictures where these guys are holding these up, and it's basically condemning the homosexual lifestyle. It's like in your face. And they're almost looking for an argument. They're almost looking for the persecution, I think, at some point. I really don't think that that's a good way to tackle this idea of witnessing to a homosexual. It doesn't do a bit of good to do that. It's kind of like the abortion debate. Uh, Some people believe that if you take the graphic images of abortions and you blow them up to a 10 by 10 and you stand out on the sidewalk and you hold those out for everybody to see, that the shock value will shock people into uh, repenting of the idea of abortion. And that's not the way to do it either. Uh, We have to reason with the individual. You have to gain the heart, and you can only gain the heart through reason. You cannot gain the heart through shock value. There's going to be shock enough when the great white throne judgment comes. But down here, Christ calls us not only to be loving in our explanation of the gospel, to be caring, but we're supposed to be just as well. We're supposed to communicate that. We're not supposed to be this glaring eyesore for the world to see. We are that by default. The world hates Christ. The world hates Christianity. And we're just making Christ and Christianity even more offensive. Now, going on with this, there are two parts to how we engage those who are in the world. There is logically and with reason, and then there's biblically. I have just been talking to you about throwing what this one particular person that I'm going to quote in here calls the clobber verses. You can take out a clobber verse and you can rack somebody over the head and say you need to repent. Now, you can do that with somebody who's a thief somebody who's a murderer, somebody who's a drug abuser, somebody who's a prostitute, you can take a verse out and just smack them upside the head. The bigger the Bible, you think the more effective it's going to be to get it into the thick cranium that may be up there and maybe somebody will repent. Again, that's not the right way. There is an appropriate time to express Scripture. Now, also, when it comes to that Scripture, and you're talking to somebody you don't necessarily have to give the address. You don't have to say, well, you know, in 1 Timothy, and you quote the chapter, and you quote the verse, and you give it to them, and you say it in Elizabethan English. It's probably not going to be received very well. And so you can say it just by your communication. Now, a verse that I've used very often uh, here concerning speech and how we communicate with each other, I will use out side of the church 
with people that I talk with. And somebody will say something that's just off color. Uh, not only off color, but maybe damaging to somebody. And I'll go up to them on occasion and I'll put my arm on their shoulder and I'll say, hey, don't you know you don't want to let anything that's unwholesome come out of your mouth? You only want to say things that are beneficial to those who listen to you. Now, what did I just quote? Ephesians 4.29. And so we can do it that way. We can give them God's truth without, without having to give the chapter and verse. Because especially if they're unbelievers... They're not going to want you quoting the Bible to them. Even believers sometimes. Have you ever quoted a verse to a believer and they roll their eyes at you? You know, it's like, oh, please, you know, give me, give me a break on this. So even believers have a hard time with it because they're in their flesh. And so you have to be wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove, just as Scripture says. Now, why use logic and reason? Well, actually, turn to... Um, Turn to Acts chapter 17. <coughs> Excuse me. In Acts chapter 17, Paul arrived in Athens, Greece, and he was with his traveling companions, and they went off, and they were doing some stuff, and he was all alone at what was called Mars Hill or the Areopagus. At the Areopagus, there were two groups of people. There were the Stoics and there were the Epicureans. And they would debate all day different philosophies. And Paul sat there and he looked at all the statues that they had. They had a statue to Zeus there. They had a, probably a statue to Athena there. They, they had a statue to Mercury there. Probably all these different Greek gods they had lined up. And you can go there today and the Areopagus still is there. Uh, it's a little bit ruinous, but it is still there. And that's where Paul went. And Paul examined all of these statues that they had, and he saw that they had this one pedestal, and it was empty. And on that pedestal, there was an inscription in Greek. It said, to the unknown God. And so they could go to each one of these gods, and they would start debating the characteristics of these gods. Not only would they do that, but they would debate the characteristics of the day. And the Epicureans and the Stoics, as I told you a couple of weeks ago, the Epicureans were into feeding the flesh and diving into anything sensual, and the Stoics were more reserved. They were trying to get the ascetic life where they're separating themselves, and it's all about knowledge. And, and so that is Paul, and that's what he's doing at the Areopagus. In Acts chapter 17, verse 21, it says, All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Now, at this particular point, I'm sure they would have been a little bit perplexed because, you know, how religious were they? And they were these great thinkers, and they can even think that there is no God, that type of thing. So Paul then stood up, excuse me, verse 23, For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now, what you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. Now, do you see what he did here? He took something of their culture, something that they were used to, and he started to expand. He used that as a springboard to launch into the gospel. He is taking something that is their cultural standard, their cultural norm. He is familiar with it, and now he's going to use it. 
And he goes on for that particular point, and he says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the time set for them in the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, and as some of your own prophets have said, we are his offspring. Now in that verse 28 there are two unique things. The first one is the quote that says, For in him we live and move and have our being. That is not a biblical quote. That is a quote from a penit. I have to say this right. Epimenides. That's it. Epimenides. And he is from the 7th or the 6th century BC. And that's what he said. So he's taking some of their cultural literature. And he is saying, for in him we move, live and move and have our being. Now, he's not talking about the God of the universe. He's talking about a false God. But he's using that quote to direct them where he wants to. And his second quote here, we are his offspring, is from Erastus. Erastus existed in the 4th or the 3rd century B.C. They don't know exactly when. But he used to be the author of several different things. He was into Stoic philosophy and language at that time where he was existing. And this is the whole quote from what he wrote. It is, Let us begin with Zeus, whom we mortals never leave unspoken, for every street, every marketplace is full of Zeus. Even the sea and the harbor are full of this deity. Everywhere, everyone is indebted to Zeus, for we are indeed his offspring. So he's taking something from secular literature and he's going to use that to get to the point he wants to get he's leading them so to speak he's leading them where he wants them to go and they're all going oh yeah this reminds me of a guy he came and spoke here at the church he was a missionary he went over to one of the arab countries i forget which one it was i think i think it was saudi arabia but he went over to saudi arabia and he grew his beard out and he had red hair but he grew his beard out a couple of inches and he dressed like they dress there. And he was able to go into a mosque. And he's a Christian and he was going to seminary. And he was a foreigner. And so they asked him to say a few words in a mosque. And he's a Christian. And so what would you say if you were invited to say some words in a mosque in Saudi, I think it was Saudi Arabia. It could have been Saudi Arabia or Afghanistan. It was one of the strict Muslim countries. What would you say if somebody gave you a chance to speak in a mosque? Do what? Okay, do, do Muslims accept the Old Testament written by Jews? Do Muslims accept the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament? Now, here you want to be a witness, but what would you say to them? I mean, would you say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in Jesus should not perish. But, you know, they would just, now they believe Jesus is a prophet, but they would immediately know you're a Christian. And as a Christian in a mosque in a 1040 window Muslim country, 
your life is in your own hands, literally, if you do something like that. So this is what he did. He goes, first God created the heavens and the earth. And he said, all the Muslims are sitting around going, hmm. they're kind of shaking their heads. And then he said, there was Adam and Eve. And they, okay, we can get along with this. And the generations passed, and God brought forth a man by the name of Abraham. And they go, oh, Abraham. That's right, Abraham. And Abraham gave birth to a son, Ishmael. Oh, yes. Ishmael. Now you see where this is going. He's in the Old Testament and then he's talking about Abraham. Abraham is probably more widely known. He is probably the one person that has name recognition throughout the entire earth more than anybody else, even more than Jesus Christ himself. Because if you combine the Muslims and the Jews and the Christians, all three religions know about Abraham. And then he went into stories about Abraham is what he was doing and how God dealt with Abraham there. And by the time the, the speech that he gave, the talk that he gave was done, they were just like, oh, that's very good. You know, they're, but they're speaking in Arabic and a translator, translator is there. And so he hit the nail on the head. He went straight to Abraham that he was a man of faith and there was Melchizedek and you know, all of that stuff that was going on. They were going, oh yeah, this is good. So he preached the Bible in a mosque in, I think, Saudi Arabia. And so he was very clever. He was wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove. And they accepted him because of that. That should be that, that anecdotal uh, story. And also uh, with, excuse me, the Apostle Paul going to the Areopagus. That is something that we need to learn from. And so if we're going to engage somebody in the homosexual community, how do you start doing that? Well, first you study what it is that they are proponents of. Uh, there are so many papers out there that you could read, you could be buried in them. And I was fishing through numerous papers and just going, how am I going to condense this down? How, how am I going to get this to a point where we can grab hold of it? Because it's difficult to grab these concepts, especially when you hear them the first time, and be able to... Uh, disseminate this information once you go from here. Well, first you know the why. We also know the scripture, but now we have to be able to meet somebody who would like to talk to us about homosexuality and in a way that is civil. Now, this is going to be a task. And so what I did is I found one article, one article that had several objections from a Christian point of view using scripture. I had a question last week. How would you talk to a Christian who is sold on the idea that homosexuality should be accepted by the church and we should let the people in? Since I was asked that question and I came across this paper and this particular paper that I was going through, I saw the same arguments in several other papers. And so what I'm going to do is go through and just actually read some of the statements that they have and then I'm going to bring with some of them logical fallacies. Now, you might say, what's a logical fallacy? A logical fallacy, if you're familiar with anything to do with logic, like an ad hominem attack. If somebody who is a homosexual, and I'll give you an example of one of these in a minute. If somebody who is a homosexual comes up 
and says, and you're in a conversation about homosexuality, the rightness or wrongness of it, the morality or the immorality of it, and they turn to you and just say to you, you are just a bigot and a homophobe is what you are. What they're doing there is they're probably losing the argument and they shift it to name-calling. And whenever you see that, you know the person is losing the argument because they get all emotional about it. And that's a common tactic. They just raise their voice, the tenor, the loud, everything about it, and they just get in your face and they tell you what a horrible person you are. That's an ad hominem attack. And so you know you're, quote-unquote, winning the argument. Now I need to qualify that. We're not going out to win an argument. We're going out to win souls. And so if we look at this as something that, I'm going to beat this guy in an argument, it's, it's not that it's a debate. We are vying f- against Satan and his kingdom for these people. And so if you win the soul, you can rejoice and give God thanks for it. But if you win the argument, you've won nothing. You want to win the person themselves. And so let me get into this. Let me give you a few rules, too, to keep in mind. <coughs> if you're going to engage somebody, and there's four of them, there must be a willingness of the individual to engage. You don't want to just find somebody. Have you ever seen some of the evangelists, if you've been out, and I've experienced this, where they just walk up to you and they try to convert you on the spot? They try to stuff down your throat some verses Are you willing to repent? And you've only been talking to them about a minute. And you really don't know what they're talking about. You become very unwilling at that point if you're an unbeliever. And so if you're engaging somebody in the topic of homosexuality, you have to establish a rapport. There has to be a willingness there for them to want to talk to you. Sometimes you even have to ask their permission. Say, can I talk to you a minute about this? Because I have some views and I'd like to bounce them off of you. And they're probably not the same as yours. And if you talk to somebody like that, normally people have an interest in God. They want to talk about God. Very few atheists you'll run across. But if you do, you know, there's another way to quote-unquote attack but not be attacking towards a person but attack the argument. But if somebody is willing to talk, that's the first rule. Don't talk to somebody who doesn't want to talk. Now, Christ talked about casting your pearls before swine. Now, that seems an awful pejorative phrase what he's talking about the thing that is precious to you you don't want to take like a a string of pearls and throw it before a pig that is in his slop you don't want to do that that is just like taking the gospel and throwing to somebody that is just going to trample it underfoot just retract just draw back and just say okay you know we don't have to talk about this and that's the end of the discussion so number one there must be a willingness secondly you have to know and use scripture first Now, if you use scripture, you don't have to give the address, but you want to use that first. If the person is rejecting that, you want to hop to logic. Now, to give you an idea, I'll give you an example of this. (coughs) Excuse me. I've mentioned these four things before, and you may be familiar with them, you may not, but they are the extra-biblical arguments for the existence of God. In other words, if you want to witness to somebody about God, there are several arguments. I think I saw somebody wrote down 30 different arguments for the existence of God without using the Bible. I'm going to give you four of them. The first one is the ontological argument. 
second one is a teleological argument the third one is a cosmological argument and then there's the moral argument for the existence of God now I'm not going to go into all those what those are but I have taught those in the past and I was giving them to somebody in the church here uh, they were in a meeting just like this and it was actually on the basic foundations class and I will cover those things in the basic foundations class and the person slowly folded their arms and thought to themselves I am not going to need this. And they thought to themselves, I'm only going to use scripture. The next day or the next week, they, before the next Sunday, they found themselves on a plane sitting right next to a PhD. She opened up her Bible. This is a woman. She opened up her Bible and she was reading the Bible. And so the PhD wanted to engage her in a conversation. And the PhD pretty much rejected the Bible. At that particular point, she came back and told me this. At that particular point, a light went on in her head. If I would have only studied the ontological argument, the teleological argument, the cosmological argument, and the moral argument for the existence of God, I'd be able to witness to this guy. Now, this woman had the gift of evangelism. And she was so mad at herself, but kind of mad at me, or I don't know, but she, she was just frustrated that she couldn't engage these guys, even though she was given the information, not even a week beforehand, but she couldn't do it. She could kind of tell what one or two of them were but she couldn't explain what they were and she felt she missed an opportunity and that was for her and so when it comes to logic when it comes to reason we want to make sure we grab hold of some of these arguments and we can recognize them now will you gain them all in the next 25 minutes the answer is no you're not going to but if this is the first time you've heard them when you hear them the second time, you'll go, oh, yeah, I remember that now. And the third time, you're going to have it almost down pat. The fourth time, you're going to be an expert, right? And so you have to start somewhere. And this is like the primer. We're starting with the primer. Now, you have to know how to use Scripture. Unless, Paul, like the Areopagus, you want to start with reason. And don't forget the compassion, okay? Thirdly, Know the trends and being current on culture and contemporary issues. In other words, what's up? Paul knew what was up when he entered the Areopagus. He knew what the people were talking about. He was well-versed. He was a philosopher in his own right. And so you have to be up on what's taking place in, in the world. If you don't know what's going on in the news, then you're not going to be as effective. I don't want you to walk out of here with a condemnation cloud over your head. I just want you to be aware. It's just an observation. If you're not prepared to meet these people who are unsaved, you're not going to be able to be effective. And so you have to be able to re relate to them on their level, what they're into, especially the millennials. I try to keep up on the millennials and what they're talking about. And there's certain websites you can go to and see what they say and see what they're thinking and see where the generation is going and and it, you need to pay attention to that stuff so you can be relevant. So you have to know the trends and the and current issues on the culture to be relevant and fourthly know that some will accept and receive what you have to say and some will not i'm going to give you an anecdotal illustration of this i have a brother who has always been an uh, honorary agnostic and when i have witnessed to him on several things when i first got saved i was a zealot i would just set people on fire and walk away <coughs> i would say 
No, you're going to hell unless you repent. And here's how you repent. And then I'd be done and I'd go away. Well, I did that to my brother and he kind of screamed at me. And then he told his, my mother, our mother, that I said he was going to hell. You know, and he screamed it at my mom and he stormed out the house. And I was like, I don't think I handled that just right. You know, so I, I would talk to him several times about what is going to take place prophetically. And this one particular time, and I can remember the conversation. We were in our backyard at a picnic table underneath the back patio and we were talking about the issue of abortion. And he came up with several arguments in favor of abortion. And so I had been studying on this, and I took them one at a time. And I was able to knock down his arguments one at a time. And when he would finish with one and saw that he wasn't winning the argument, he'd hop to the next one. And so he went to four or five different arguments. And by the time it was all done, he just blurted out, no matter what you say, I'm not changing my mind. And I said, okay, let's just establish it's your own obstinance that keeps you from turning to the other side. You just don't want to. And he goes, yeah. I said, okay, that's fine. So some will accept what you have to say and some will reject it. And you can't walk away with your head down, you know, and just saying, I'm a failure. You can't do that because most people will not accept what you have to say. Okay? So those are the rules that you want to keep in mind. There must be willingness on the part of the individual to engage. Know the scripture first. And unless like Paul in the Areopagus, start with reason. Thirdly, know the trends and be current on culture and contemporary issues. Know what's up. And know that some will accept and receive what you have to say and some will not. I took this article. I'm just going to tell you where I got it. It's www.notalllikethat.org forward slash and there's hyphens between all these words. Taking God at his word, the Bible and homosexuality. I'll say it again. www.notalllikethat, one word or one, no spaces, dot org forward slash and with hyphens between each word, taking God at his word, the Bible and homosexuality. Now, the text that is in this particular blog here comes from unfair Christians and the LGBT question. I'm just going to start by reading what they have to say. Christians are increasingly divided over the issue of acceptance and inclusion of gay persons in the church. The debate itself is usually framed as essentially pitting the Bible on one hand against compassion and social justice on the other. Our Christian hearts run the usual argument, compel us to grant full moral and legal equality to gay and lesbian people. Our Christian faith comes, comes the rebuttal, compels us to cleave above all to the word of God. Compassion for others is the fundamental cornerstone of Christian ethics. The Bible is the bedrock of the Christian faith. What Christian can possibly choose between the two? <clears throat> Bible, on the other hand, and full equality for gay and lesbian people, on the other hand, is a false dichotomy. God would not... Oh, that's, I'm sorry, that's what I said. Now, what they're talking about here is they're giving you two choices. They're giving you a choice between compassion for the gay and sticking to your Bible. Now, that is a false comparison there. 
let me ask you something. If you have a lie here and you have a truth here and you say we need to compromise and you go to the middle, what do you have in the middle? Well, some would say a half-truth. And what is a half-truth? It's a lie. So if you move from the truth here and you go towards the lie, the truth breaks down, right? So there is a fallacy in logic that it's a compromise in the middle that you have to reach. They do this in politics all the time. People have truth and righteousness in some degree on this hand, and then they have those who like to obfuscate. They like to muddy the waters, and they want you to compromise with them. As soon as you do, you move away from truth, and it's a sliding towards Gomorrah. Do you understand how that works? And so when it comes to this issue of choosing between compassion and your Bible, when it comes to the homosexual, if you say, okay, my Bible is going to move towards compassion as they define it. If you do that, what happens to the Bible? It loses its power, right? So in this article, they will eventually get to the point where homosexuality is okay in a committed relationship, a marriage of two of the same sex. If a homosexual act is committed there, it's not sinful. And that's where they want you to get in this article. And so if you do that, you are watering down the pure milk, the pure meat of the scripture, and you're saying, I'm going to move it in this direction. So as a Bible-believing Christian, you would be compromising your faith, and that's what they're saying. You don't have to do that, this false dichotomy of having to go towards compassion and get rid of your Bible, okay? So you understand how that works. This is called the argument to moderation. It's... <laughs> the middle ground fallacy. If somebody comes to you and says, man, you need to be just a little more compassionate. And let me ask you the question. Towards a homosexual who is struggling with their homosexuality, what would be the compassionate thing to do if they'd like to know if it's right or wrong? You tell them the truth. And why is that compassionate? Because it could lead to their salvation. It would be beneficial for them. If you tell them, you know, God will forgive you, that, that is a lie according to Scripture. And so if you move in that direction at all, yes, you are compromising the Scripture. And you don't want to do that. You have to stand on those things which are considered absolute truth. Remember, absolute truth comes from the theistic worldview, the biblical, moral, theistic worldview. That's where we're coming from as believers. If you compromise that at all, you're putting those who you talk to and who you witness to and who you are an example to in danger. Now, how do you think God will come to you as far as your reward is concerned when he asks you, what did you do with my scripture? What do you want to say to him when you say, well, you know, I was having a heart of compassion for the individual. You think God might say something along the line of, why did you do that? And then you're going to have to explain. Now, at this particular point, some people would, would might say, that's getting a little heavy, isn't it? You know, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so if, if we fear that, when I give you the word here, I am filled with fear that I get it right. 
And if ever I get it wrong, I come and tell you. I will tell you, I got this wrong. And, you know, it just proves God's right that I'm a sinner. And I need to set this in order and make sure that he is lifted up and I can decrease and it's okay. It's okay to do that. It's okay that I didn't get it right. I don't want to misrepresent God and who he is. And in the times when that has happened in the past, I've always gone back and I said, you know, I've gotten this wrong. And we can do that. And it's okay. God expects us to do that. So we don't want to compromise. We don't want to moderate our position for the sake of somebody who is out there who may not agree with us. Now, going on with this, here's another quote. If there is no clearly stated directive in the Bible to marginalize and ostracize gay people, then it is morally indefensible for Christians to continue to do so. Let me translate. If the Bible, excuse me, if it is not clearly stated that you are to disassociate yourself with a person who calls himself a Christian and is homosexual, then you must not do it and it is a sin, is what they're saying. I would ask you the question, does scripture say you're supposed to separate from the person who is an unrepentant sinner that calls themselves a Christian? Can anybody tell me where? Yes? The first what? How? That's it. It's First Corinthians chapter five. It's good. You got the book. That's excellent. <coughs> so it does say, as a matter of fact, let's see. I think I have it right here somewhere. Actually, turn there. Okay, turn to First Corinthians chapter five. I'm going to give this to you. These are clearly stated directives for the church. And this was given specifically to the church of Corinth. The church of Corinth was greatly loved, but they were a mess. They were doing things completely wrong. And they were accepting people who were sexually immoral and saying, it's okay to do that. And Paul said, stop it. You know, he he wasn't really yelling at them, but he probably used some capital letters in his text, you know, at a particular point. And you know what that means, right? Every once in a while, if you use capital letters, it's like you're yelling at the person. Well, he may have done that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, it says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. Now, here you could have put like an exclamation point, like, Is this true? I've heard this. Kind of like that, right? He goes on in verse 9. He says, I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And he qualifies that. Not at all in verse 10, meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy or swindlers and idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave the world. Verse 11 says, but now I am writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral or greedy an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard, or a swindler with such a man do not even eat. So if somebody wants to be involved in the homosexual lifestyle and says it's okay, that means they're unrepentant. Not that they're struggling. If somebody is struggling with it, we're to bring them in and help them and give them a hug and say, hey, I'm praying for you. I want to help you all I can. It's not that person. It's the person that turns to you and says, I can do this. God forgives me if it is a sin, and I don't even think it's a sin, and we're in a relationship, and we're married, and God doesn't condemn that. 
that individual, you simply have to ask, you might want to think about fellowshipping elsewhere. Now, this applies to all churches. There are some churches that don't hold to this, and they are progressive or they're liberal in their interpretation of Scripture. So Scripture does say there is a directive where you're supposed to separate yourself. Okay? Now, going on with this, verse 13 1 Corinthians chapter 5. God will judge those outside and expel the wicked man from among you. So God calls the person who calls themselves a Christian who is involved in a sin and is unrepentant wicked. That's what God says. Now what's the compassionate thing to do when somebody comes to you and says, I want to live like this and I think God will forgive me. Take into 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Say, is this what you want? Do you want to be expelled or do you want to repent? And again, it's not just the homosexual. It's anybody who's involved in a sin that is unrepentant. So you want to keep that in mind as well. Here's the next one. Homosexual Christians are being unbiblical by using the clobber passages as justification for applying absolute standards of morality to homosexual sins. First, are there absolutes? There are absolutes. Okay. Where do they come from? God. And how did he communicate them to us? In the word. So there are absolutes that we need to adhere to. That they themselves are not tempted to commit while they at the same time accepting for themselves a standard of relative morality for those sins listed, the clobber passages that they do routinely commit. What did they just say? They said that here you Christians go and clobber the homosexual with a verse when at the same time there are verses that apply to you that you don't apply to yourself. Now, what do you think about that? They are turning they are turning the actual problem back on the accuser is what they're doing for justification. There is actually a word for this in logic. This is called I'm gonna spell it for you. T U two Quoque. Two T U Quoque. Q-U-E, excuse me, Q-U-O-Q-U-E. And what this means is avoiding having to engage with criticism by turning it back on the accuser, answering criticism with criticism. If you see somebody doing that, if they're saying, well, you're condemning these homosexuals when you should condemn yourself because these verses apply to you even though those verses may apply to them, so I don't even want to talk to you about what's going on. They are making a logical fallacy when they're communicating. Now, will you remember this? Not the first time. It's going to take you a couple of times to go through this in order to be able to argue. Now, remember, the person who is a homosexual, most people that you run across are not going to be Christians. There's going to be a group of people who are homosexuals that are Christians. And you can go through the Bible and you want to do Bible study with them and get them to interpret the Bible properly. Now, to do that, for instance, uh, Autumn, who sings? What color is her hair? Red. If I were to put on regular glasses and look at her hair in this light, what color would, would her hair be? It would be red. Right. <coughs> if I turned on the red lights, there are two red lights here, and I put on red glasses and I looked at her hair, what color would her hair be? probably blonde it would look blonde or whitish is what it would look it wouldn't look red because of the red being 
overwhelming and you see everything in that color in that particular spectrum. So what the person is doing who is a Christian that is looking at the Bible, it's like they have red glasses on. And they can't really discern the color of somebody's hair because they have the red glasses on. What you need to gently do is walk up and go, here, let me help you. And you take off the glasses and you turn on the right light. You illuminate the scripture and the Holy Spirit illuminates the scripture. Then they see clearly. I have seen it before where people have aha moments where they get into the scripture and they just go, I I never saw that before. I never understood that. And God requires us to lead them in that direction. How can you do that unless you understand first the scripture? So you see where I'm going with this? Now, you want to make sure that you're able to pull out these fallacies. Remember, you have the ad hominem. If somebody just attacks you, that's going to be a problem. If you have, I'm just going to say, the turn back on the accuser argument, you know that that's a fallacy. They're they're not arguing correctly. They're trying to be logical in their dissertation, and they're blowing it through the act of logic. Okay, you follow me so far? Are we together? And then they use scripture verses. And they pull them out of context. Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, what is that saying? They're not denying that it may be a sin, but you're not the one to call it a sin, is what they're saying. They use others in this particular dissertation. They say, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. One another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And whatever other command there may be are summed up in the command, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And you're not being very loving if you pull out these verses and you say this is wrong. And so they're trying to make the case there. And this is another logical fallacy. It's cherry picking, where you cherry pick a verse and you make it say what you want it to say, right? That's what they're doing in this particular defense. Now, going on, here's another one that they wrote. Homosexuality is briefly mentioned in only six or seven of the Bible's 31,173 verses. Now, as soon as you hear that, what do you think? My first thought is, how many verses does it take before you consider it wrong? One, two, how many did I give you in the beginning? 13 verses that deal with this particular subject. So how many, verse, how many people does it take to convict somebody in a court of law? Two or three witnesses, according to the Bible. Now, if you go to court of law here, you're going to have 12 of your peers up there, that type of thing. But the number of verifiable witnesses that will take the stand, if you have two or three, that's enough right? So there are several verses in which to communicate how something is wrong. And if somebody uses, it's just not important. There's only a couple of verses that deal with this. They go on to say, the fact that homosexuality is so rarely mentioned in the Bible should be an indication to us that the lack of importance ascribed it by the authors of the Bible. In other words, it's not very important because there's not very many verses that deal with it, right? How many uh, verses deal with uh, the gifts of the Spirit. You have Ephesians, you have Romans, and you have 1 Corinthians. That's what you have in the New Testament. Three sections of Scripture. There are 13 sections of Scripture for homosexuality. So you see the problem when somebody's trying to make an argument? Now, God tells us to 
pull down these strongholds. Now, he does it by the act of his spirit, but we're to be the ones that he uses to do so. We're to destroy or demolish everything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. You're not to demolish the person. You're to demolish the argument. And that's what's being called on to do here. To, to go on, to give you another example of what's happening here. The Bible isn't a rule book, and Christians cannot lift out of its context any passage from it and still hope to gain a clear understanding of that passage. What did I just read you that this particular person did? They cherry-picked verses. Now they're saying, don't cherry-pick the verses. Now when you read some of these papers, every one of these, I read it and I kind of pull my hair out. Can you tell? I kind of, I kind of pull my hair out and go... You don't see the issue clearly. And when I read these papers, you know, if, if I have them in my computer, sometimes I'll make notes of, what about this? And what about this? And what about this? And I type it out in there and I just leave it in there for future reference. And, and so when somebody is writing a paper, you can tell they're coming from an emotional bent. Now, if I can find it in here, there are so many of these that they wrote down. I think it was back up before this. They say that it is it is mean, it is hurtful, it is degrading, it is debilitating to the individual that's a homosexual for you to tell them that it's wrong. It's hateful is what it is. Then they will say, you're a hater. And so then they go to the logical fallacy that is the emotional argument. They will try to win you through your heart and say, you're just being so mean. Why do you have to be so mean? Now, are you really being mean if you tell somebody that something is wrong and it could lead to their salvation? No. So you see the fallacy involved in that, right? If your little son comes to you and says, I want to go swimming without a life vest and your four-year-old son is insistent on it, and throws fits and drops to the ground because you're going to make them wear a life vest if they get into the water in the lake. Are you being mean because you make them wear the life vest? No, you're being a good parent. And the same thing applies to the homosexual who is out there. Now, again, a lot of these questions, a lot of these statements, a lot of these arguments that are coming up, they were ubiquitous in a lot of these papers. They were everywhere. They kept on coming up repeatedly. Let me, I think I have a couple more here. In the clobber passages, Paul condemns the coercive, excessive, and predatory same-sex sexual activity practiced by the Romans and would have condemned the same acts had they been heterosexual in nature. Now, what fallacy is that that I've already told you? Turn it back on the accuser is what they're doing. And they repeat this particular one several times in their argument. And so when it comes to a logical fallacy, even though you may not remember the words, start to recognize, start to be critical, not critical of the person, but critical of the argument. Be able to dissect it. Just say, well, what is it exactly that you're saying in your particular argument? Let me see if I have another one here. The Bible's clobber passages were written about same-sex acts between heterosexual persons. 
and do not address the subject of homosexual acts between a committed gay couple because the concept of a person being homosexual did not exist at the time the Bible was written. (laughs) The word homosexual did not exist at the time the Bible was written. That came in in 1892. But the actual behavior existed. It has existed since the beginning of time. Now, how many of Adam's children were homosexual or engaged in homosexual acts? We don't know. But certainly by the time Moses came along, it was common practice. And before that, remember the a blog that I read you about that doctor who was digging up Sodom and Gomorrah and about the Syrophoenician habits of kidnapping a 12-year-old boy and a 22-year-old boy would do it who had already been kidnapped when he was 12 years old and for eight years had to live with a 22-year-old in order to be raped by him for eight years. And so, or 10 years, it would be 10 years. And so, It was practiced at that time. They're trying to say it didn't exist. Well, it did exist. Now, if you know your Bible, you can start going through it. In Leviticus, if it existed there in chapter 18 and chapter 20, you can show them that it was commonplace at that particular point. And it was not to be engaged in. It was prohibited. And actually, in the Old Testament, the person was to be stoned, right? Let me see if I have one more. Because there was no concept of gay marriage when the Bible was written, the Bible does not and could not address the sinfulness of homosexual acts within the context of gay marriage. What they're saying is the acts are okay if there's a union between a man and a man or between a woman and a woman. Now, how would you address that? Where does it say that? It just describes a relationship that's heterosexual in Corinthians. Where does it say a marriage is between a man and a woman? Say it again. (laughs) Say it again. And where else in the New Testament? Ephesians chapter 5, right? A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife. Now, in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22, can you read that? Okay. That doesn't specifically talk about marriage, but it does say that there is a prohibition against a man and a man. Now, if you get married, that verse certainly applies, right? Even if you're married, God says, don't, don't do this. And again, it's not, it's not to kill your fun and enjoyment and pleasure and all that. It will lead to your destruction if you are gay. Now, I told you, <coughs> all of us in here know somebody who is gay. I, I might work on this next week. Now, the next week that we're going to meet, what I'm going to do, remember the questions? You guys remember the questions that I gave you? I'm going to read them again. I'm going to read them again so that they will be on the website and you can go to them. You can listen to this message. I've quoted them every week so far. This is the third week. And you can be able to give a response to each one of these questions. And there may be a few more by the time we get to next week. But I I may end up talking to somebody who claims to be a Christian that is supportive of the homosexual lifestyle. And if I can, I may try to get them here. And I would put them on stage if they were agreeable. 
and you could not attack them. But we would have a discussion. And I would invite him to field questions from you as well. To where you, you cannot attack if this person agrees, but you can ask questions in a respectful manner. Now, it may have one of several effects. It may change their heart on it. It may change it for the good. It may set it in stone in what they believe. It all depends on how you would treat them. If I can get them here. I would love to be able to get them here, but I'm, I'm not going to go any farther than that. But these are the questions. I want to read them to you again. If I have a family member who is gay and claims to be a Christian, what do I do? How do I treat them? If I get married, do I go to the wedding? Do I participate in the wedding? Do I invite them to dinner? Should I attend any function where there is going to be gays showing signs of affection? Should I maintain close friendships with those who are gay? Can I go to Hillcrest and hang out in the restaurants? Should I participate in anything concerning Pride Week in San Diego? My workplace promotes the gay agenda and is tolerant of everything else but Christianity. Should I stay or should I quit? Should I remain silent about everything gay? If I'm a baker of cakes, should I refuse to bake a cake for a gay wedding? Should we allow someone who is gay to attend church? What if someone is transgender and they get saved? What then? We need to have responses to these things. So I want you guys to go and work on these questions. And try to come up with both a logical response and a biblical response. Because if you have the two of them, you will be ready. Remember the sword of the word? It's a double-edged sword, right? So that means it will cut going either way. And it can cut for good and it can cut for bad. On one hand, you can use the word. On the other hand, you can use logic. Those two together. It's like uh, scripture says, let us go up to the house of the Lord and reason together. If you put those two things together and you slice and dice in a good way, you can bring salvation to the individual. And you will be blessed if you do that. And so that's my hope. That when this series is done, and I'm definitely going to end it next week, when it is done, we will go out here with a better knowledge, a more thorough knowledge of how to address this situation as a church and also as an individual. Now, do you have any questions at this point? I did not pass out the list to the people. No. Yes, Cheryl. So you have someone who professes to be a Christian that is living in the gay lifestyle, but they're just totally misled. They don't really understand yet. You know, are they to be kicked out of the church if they're questioning and trying to figure it out? Okay, they just don't want to welcome until they discern that they've been Okay, that's what we're going to answer next week okay but you should try to come up with an answer now remember yeah remember it needs to be based and the foundation of it needs to be based in the bible on these questions if you base it on what you feel you're going to err now proverbs chapter 3 verses 5 and 6 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. James talks about wisdom. If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God and he will provide it for you without finding fault. In other words, he's not going to look at you and say, what are you doing asking a question about homosexuality? You got all these other sins piled up yourself. Why don't you deal with those first before you answer these questions? God doesn't do that. 
He just says, I'm going to give you wisdom on this because I'll give you wisdom on this particular subject and we'll go to the next one and the next one and the next one. And you will grow in your walk with the Lord and you will have a compassionate response. Compassion is defined by the Bible, not as defined by the word. Now, what I'd like you to do at this point is I'd like you to stand. We're going to sing a closing song and close with a prayer. So if you'd stand, please.